BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Leftists and other miscreants are upset that the Supreme Court has decided to hear an abortion case that could overturn Roe v. Wade and make it harder for leftists to slaughter children, which apparently is something leftists enjoy for some reason. The case involves a challenge to a Mississippi law which bans abortion after you can hear either a fetal heartbeat or a baby screaming, please don't kill me, I'm just a child, have some humanity for the love of God, whichever comes first. The law is being challenged by the Center for Non-Existent Rights in the Spread of Absolute Evil and the Cult of Baal, which defends a woman's right to sacrifice her child to the dark gods of ancient Palestine until the harvest comes in or Jehovah destroys our cities with fire and brimstone, whichever comes immediately after you can hear the fetal heartbeat. Various abortion supporters have made their arguments on CNN in preparation for making them in public. For instance, Planned Parenthood leader I Am Legion says it's unfair to bring the case before a Supreme Court with so many Trump appointees. In a weirdly multiple voice, which sounded eerily like the buzzing of a thousand flies, Ms. Legion said, quote, Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch should recuse themselves. They all have children and some of them actually were children themselves and so may show favoritism to just the sort of people we're trying to exterminate. Of course, Sonia Sotomayor used to be a child, too, but she grew up into a wise Latina and apologized for the mistakes of her past, like not killing babies, unquote. Another supporter of abortion is Dr. Helen Sinecure, professor of women's studies or whatever at the University of Moral Oblivion in Canada someplace. Dr. Sinecure spoke to Wolf Blitzer in the privacy of his studio, saying, quote, let's do a mind experiment. Suppose a woman wakes up hooked to a dialysis machine along with a concert violinist. And she can't remember how she got there because she was so drunk last night, she slept with three different men. And now she's pregnant. And who the hell knows who the father is? It could even be her uncle, which would be incest, which should be totally legal, by the way. Shouldn't she have the right to kill the violinist so she can shut down the noisy dialysis machine and sleep off this hangover? I think we would all agree that's a basic human right. Unquote. Finally, the professor of biological ethics at Princeton University, Dr. Ed Gein, spoke to Don Lemon on his new show entitled, Please Won't Someone Watch My New Show. Dr. Gein said, quote, to say that a fetus is a human being just because it's human and a being is absurd. My dog has a greater degree of self-consciousness and can also do an adorable trick where you balance a treat on his nose and then he flips it up in the air and eats it. And yet every day, these cute little pooches are being pushed off sofas in living rooms across the country. It makes me so angry, I just want to tear a baby out of its mother's womb, rip it to pieces, and then sell its body parts for scientific experiments. But of course, that would be barbaric, unquote. Chief Justice John Roberts said he feared the controversial case could damage the reputation of his court. Then he escaped over the border into Mexico wearing a fake Zapata mustache and a sombrero. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky dunky Ship shaped, ipsy topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray! It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray! Oh, hooray, hooray! 
All right. The vast right wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues. And I remain homeless. Uh, the birds have their nests and the fox has his den or whatever the hell a fox has. <laughs> but the son of Clavenon has nowhere to lay his head. Just to show you how crazed I am at this point. I'm living. My wife and I are living in Airbnbs, several Airbnbs before we can move into our new home. I walked down yesterday morning into my hotel lobby and it was decorated with Christmas trees. There are people putting up Christmas trees and I, I went into brain freeze. I just stood there for, it must've been 30 seconds. I just stood there going, you know, and I, I was thinking if I check my phone and it's December, I'm screwed. I mean, I would be fit for no job but president of the United States. It turned out, however, that it was, that it was a movie. They're shooting a movie. I took a picture of it because later on they came and shot this movie. This is one of those, uh, it's not Hallmark, it's, it's Lifetime. They, you know, they do those Christmas films. And this one, you can see in the right-hand corner, that red-haired girl, that's Reba McIntyre. Uh, so that'll, it's called like Christmas in Tune. So that, that's what it was, luckily. Thank, thank heavens. Please go on iTunes and YouTube. Go on iTunes and give this show a five-star. Give it six stars. Don't why, why be stingy. Give it six stars. Subscribe to it. That really helps us out. And go on YouTube and subscribe to my personal channel uh, just as an act of aggression against the other hosts on The Daily Wire. If you leave a comment that is you know, particularly nasty, uh, maybe a little racist, possibly sexist, and just, just utterly disgusting, we'll include it in the show because it'll fit right in. Today we have one from Sky O. He says, although I'm subscribed to most members of The Daily Wire, this is the first time I'm watching one of your shows, and all I have to say is, can you ble- please be my father? And that's an interesting one because I actually am his father. Uh, <laughs> he just doesn't know it. Also, <laughs> also, if you want to be in the mailbag, subscribe to dailywire.com and then hit, I don't know, hit the watch button. You'll find it. You hit my, you hit the watch button and go to my podcast. There's a little uh, airplane, a folded airplane for some reason. I have no idea what that means. You can ask me any question you want. You can ask me about religion. You can ask me about your personal life. You can ask me about politics. All my answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life. And you say, will they change my life for the better? Uh, call my lawyer. Uh, and discuss it with him. So you've heard me talk about the Helix mattress and how much I love staying awake on it all night because it's just that comfortable. Helix has now left the bedroom and started making sofas. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making beautiful sofas. You don't have to take my word for it. Go on their website and just take a look at them. They just are terrific. What makes them so cool is that it is the easiest way to customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, it's spill, stain, and scratch resistant, the sofa color, the color of the legs, sofa size, shape, and make sure it's perfect for you and your home. And if getting a sofa without trying it in a store sounds a little risky, don't worry, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Clavin. That's allform.com slash Clavin. So my favorite literary critic is a guy named Stephen Greenblatt. He is a wonderful, wonderful literary critic. And like all talented American writers, uh, he is related to my family. <laughs> Just about every talented writer in America is somehow related to me. Uh, I've never met Greenblatt, but he was his mentor was my father-in-law, uh, Tom Flanagan, who was a very, very talented novelist and a, a brilliant English professor. He was the uh, head of the English department at Berkeley 
when I was there and met his daughter, which is how I graduated from Berkeley, uh, by by stealing his daughter. But anyway, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, you may have heard of Stephen Greenblatt because he wrote a book called uh, Will in the World about William Shakespeare. It was an actual bestseller. Uh, and I just love him. I'm going to say something critical about him. So I want to make it clear, first of all, that his books, I just love his books. They're like eating cake. They're full of incredible scholarship, wonderfully clear writing, brilliant ideas. But, but, as far as I can tell, he is a complete atheist and part of that kind of secular Jewish culture uh, I've talked about before. He doesn't believe in God. And because he doesn't believe in God, he sometimes, as brilliant as he is, as great a scholar as he is, he sometimes does not understand what he's talking about. I mean, or at least the way he talks about it seems to me ridiculous. And that's, you know, only on occasion that does it do it, especially when he's talking about something that has to do about God. So he wrote this book called The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve about Genesis and its effect on Western culture. And he talks about St. Augustine. Now, St. Augustine, for those of you who don't follow these things, his theology creates much of medieval Christianity. I mean, he didn't invent, obviously, the ideas of original sin or the Trinity, but he developed them to the point where they became central to the religion. Uh, and he certainly moved Adam and Eve to the central, a central place in the story of Jesus, in the story of redemption. And so all of us, anybody who is a Westerner, anybody who has been touched by Western culture, all of us are shaped by St. Augustine. Every single one of us, whether we want to be or not, whether we like it or not, his ideas are part of who we are. And, and Augustine struggled his whole life with Genesis. He started out by feeling it was just a metaphor and that Christians were making themselves look stupid by believing it uh, uh, literally. And he wrote in his confessions, he wrote this kind of metaphorical explanation of what he thought Genesis means, which sounds bizarrely like Einstein's theory of relativity. It's really nuts. Like, I mean, he's writing in the fourth century, so it's really bizarre. But later on, he began to feel that, no, there was literal truth here, and he had to explore it. And he was doing that, I think, when he died. He never finished his, his book about it. So Greenblatt is writing about this guy who is central to all of our lives, central to the story of Adam and Eve. And he goes off into this Freudian interpretation of Augustine's life where he turns it into an Oedipal drama, which is the drama of a boy wanting to kill his father and sleep with his mother, which has been largely debunked. I mean, it's certainly been debunked as normative. Most people do not have an Oedipal complex. Most people do not want to sleep with their mothers or kill their fathers. Uh, maybe that's a neurotic thing that happens to people, but that's what he talks about. So as a young man, Augustine was at the Roman baths with his father, Patricius. And uh, he, he got uh, an erection and his father saw this and was delighted, of course, with Stars teasing his son. It's a wonderful thing because now he knew he was going to be, be a grandfather. He knew that the guy was equipped to be to make him a grandfather. But Augustine's mother, Monica, was a devout Christian. His father was a, a pagan, but she was a Christian. And she feared that this sexual urge directed a man's thoughts away from God by making him love God's creation instead of the creator. Now, as you know, I feel completely differently about this. I think that, you know, you by loving the creation, you can reach the creator, but this is Augustine's mother. Okay, so he, he feels this is a formative moment. Greenblatt feels it's a formative moment in Augustine's life and that the struggle between father and mother is, is what sweeps Augustine into this Oedipal complex where he is becomes essentially becomes a Christian to get his mother. And he describes the tension in this speech he's making about the book, this cut 22. Augustine remembers that many of his mother's friends appeared with bruised and battered faces, complaining of their husband's violence, but that his mother would reproach him. By the laws of matrimony, 
They were, she would remind them, their husbands and silai, their slave girls. It's all the more telling then that on her son's behalf, rather than on her own, Monica was willing to make a scene. Patricius's sexual behavior was one thing, her son's quite another. When her husband beamed at what he had seen at the bath, she began to dread, Augustine writes, that I might follow in the crooked path of those who do not keep their eyes on you, but turn their backs instead. It's not difficult to see just whose path Monica feared her son might be following. She set about deliberately and systematically to drive a wedge between son and father. So he sees this as a family drama, the great ideas of Western culture being formed in this man's mind and in this man's life. And all he really sees is this, uh, as I say, an Oedipal drama, this tension between father and mother that he feels is sexual. And he finally ends up in the book talking about this moment where Augustine and Monica are talking about God and they both have a simultaneous spiritual experience, which Greenblatt interprets as an orgasm, basically, that they finally have son and father, uh, son and mother have finally uh, had sex together. But it's, of course, it's all spiritual. Nothing like that is happening at all. Because he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't really care what Augustine is actually talking about, the ideas that he's thinking about. He can't imagine that the mother is trying to get Augustine to become a Christian because she believes that God is real and God wants him focused on the things of God. All he can see is this Freudian sexual drama, a theory which, as I say, has been largely exploded. And most of what Freud says, I think Freud got so much exactly the opposite wrong. Freud says that God is a projection of our fathers onto the heavens, which makes no sense. In other words, we imagine this father in, in heaven because we want our fathers to protect us. But what evolutionary fairy tale could make us feel that our fathers should be just or our fathers should be uh, you know, infallible and powerful the way God is? It seems so much more likely that what we're projecting onto our fathers is the face of God and that our fathers fail by various, various degrees to live up to that, and we move on to the thing beyond the creation to the creator. I bring all this up in order to talk about Israel and the Jews and about history itself, which I feel we look right through if we are not talking about the Jews and God. We cannot understand this. We had this talk on backstage, and everybody was talking about American aid and Hamas and terrorists and all this stuff, and all, you know, obviously all political interest, but I feel we are missing what Jew hatred is about. And that's what we're talking about, especially right now on the left. We are missing what the Jews and Jew hatred are about if we are not understanding where they stand in, in relation to God. And you don't even have to believe in God. You do not even have to believe in God to see that this is true. In the same way, you don't have to believe that money is worth anything to use it to buy something. You just have to understand that this is what formed our minds and this is what is in our minds. You know, Jew hatred is so enduring. They call it the oldest hatred for a reason. It's so enduring. It's so universal. It's so recurrent that it's got to have a deep explanation. All the things they come up with to explain it, oh, they, you know, Israel did this and, you know, Jews behave this way and this powerful Jew got people angry. Whatever it is they explained it, uh, when they explained it by social standing, none of that, none of that explains it. It has to be. It has to be the Jewish place 
in our relationship with God. You know, the Jew hatred flagged a little bit after the Holocaust. That's the world I grew up in. And I used to say, I even wrote this somewhere, that we were holiday Jews. We were living before, after the Holocaust. So after that Jew hatred had subsided, Jew hatred, people were ashamed. They saw where Jew hatred could lead and it, it had subsided, but I knew it was going to come back and now it's back and it is back with a vengeance and it's breaking my heart. It breaks my heart to see it. So, you know, the New York Times is now finally reporting it. And they say in the wake of clashes, we'll get back to this in a minute. In the wake of clashes in Israel and Gaza, synagogues have been vandalized and Jews have been threatened and attacked. Now, why would that be? I wonder what would inspire that. Could it be the words of Democrats like this, like uh, cut six? Through Bibi Netanyahu, you have a reactionary racist who is now running that country. And the United States must acknowledge its role in the injustice and human rights violations of Palestinians. Many members of Congress have instead fallen back on a blanketed statement defending Israel's airstrikes against civilians under the guise of self-defense. We will continue to fight for our rights in Palestine and in Ferguson. We stand with you in solidarity. I rise today to recognize the deep trauma and loss of life perpetuated by systems of oppression here in the United States and globally. We must acknowledge and condemn the disproportionate discrimination and treatment that Palestinians face versus others in this region. That's from the Washington Free Beacon. They put the music in there. I just... Uh, you know, I don't want to go into the vast history of Israel or anything like this, but this is the Gaza Strip, which they took over after the Six-Day War with Egypt in, back in the 60s. Uh, they returned it uh, under the Oslo Accords in the 90s, and the Palestinians in that place, in return for getting the land back, uh, immediately elected a terrorist government, Hamas, that is a genocidal terrorist government. In their charter, which I read a couple of shows ago, they just want to destroy the Jews. They blame them for everything. And they've been raining missiles on Israel. And Ilhan Omar says, well, it's the guise of self-defense. It's the guise of self-defense because it's self-defense. And because of this, because this is the kind of talk that's being condoned and inspired in our government by these high-level people, we're starting to see things like people shouting, kill the Jews in, in demonstrations across the West. Uh, in Brooklyn, this guy was uh, attacked and beaten up. It's a, it's a terrifying story. He's He was attacked for wa- walking while Jewish. Here's his description of what happened to him. Cut eight. I was walking on the way, had my yarmulke on, my kippah. And around 48th Street, at the corner of my eye, I see someone chasing me. Before I could even react, I was surrounded by a, a whole group of, uh, you know, individuals who then proceeded to, you know, kick me, punch me, hit me with crutches, beat me with like flagpoles. I've seen videos in LA, I've seen videos in London, and you think it can happen anywhere. But, you know, when it actually happens, like, personally, even more so than to someone, you know, it's really just like shakes your world up a little bit, to be honest. This is you can tell that the left is ashamed, knows they know they're guilty for this because they're blaming it on the right. And this is the New York Times. Listen to this lie. There's so many lies packed into this from the New York Times, a former newspaper. So many lies packed into this that I I could spend the rest of the show just taking out the the, the lies and explaining the lies that says this until the latest surge, anti-Semitic violence in recent years was largely considered a right-wing phenomenon driven by a white supremacist movement emboldened by rhetoric from former President Donald Trump, who often trafficked in stereotypes. I I 
can't go through all every, there's almost, almost the commas have lies on them in this thing. But, but first of all, you can always tell the New York Times is lying when they go into the passive voice. It was considered a right wing phenomenon instead of we consider it a right wing phenomenon because we're so ashamed of ourselves for having brought this on and we're going to continue to do it. And we're ashamed of that too. So we want you to think about Donald Trump for a minute. But also, of course, Donald Trump was the greatest friend, uh, the Jews ever had in the White House and half his family is Jewish and there's nothing anti-Semitic about him. I have to say, the more I learn about how much your privacy is compromised online, the more I want to surround myself with security systems. Free email services, for instance, that come from big tech email providers, they aren't really free. You pay with your privacy. Since those companies have access to every email you send and receive, big tech can sell your data to the highest bidder. You ought to try StartMail to secure your email. It makes you feel safe again. Startmail keeps mail private, period. Every email is encrypted, even if the recipient doesn't use encryption, which means big tech can't read, scan, analyze, or sell your personal information ever. Not even Big Brother can snoop around your email. Startmail also prevents government agencies from spying on you, like in Dragnet operations. You get unlimited anonymous aliases. This feature protects your main email address from spam and phishing attacks. So when you're giving your email to a company but want to protect your identity, Startmail can generate a shareable alias email so people can't sell your information and they can be deleted anytime. Don't trust big tech. You shouldn't. Start securing your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today and get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash Clavin. That's Startmail with a T, S-T-A-R-T, mail.com slash Clavin for 50% off your first year. Startmail.com slash Clavin. So, and then they started this nonsense over Marjorie Taylor Greene, this minor, minor backbench, uh, you know, congresswoman who is, lo- she's loopy. And I'm not condoning what she said at all or anything like this. But here's what she says. Cut 16. This woman is mentally ill. You know, we can look back in a time in history where people were told to wear a gold star and they were definitely treated like second class citizens, so much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. And this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. When she makes people wear masks in the Congress, she's making this absurd comparison. And oh my gosh, the left went nuts, right? I mean, you can tell they're hiding. They're hiding behind the press. The press is putting up this shield and they're hiding behind the press because they've inspired this Jew hatred with their rhetoric and with their positions. It's not their rhetoric, it's their philosophy because their rhetoric is just expressing their philosophy. So just to show you an example, Wolf Blitzer uh, and, uh, you know, on CNN, where luckily nobody is watching, but still they're talking about this. Play this cut. This is 20. After the third time she was given a chance to either recant or retract or clarify, she tripled down on these repulsive comments. Wolf. Yeah, I mean, it's really sick when you think about it. For you and me, it's not just political. It's not just the story we're covering. This is a very personal issue, given the fact that both of us, we lost family during the Holocaust. Being uh, gassed, which is what my great-grandparents were, is a whole different thing. And to compare that to the notion of public health uh, and wearing a mask is just beyond the pale. It's beyond. They have never, ever heard anything like this because they've never heard Democrats say something like cut one. 
This week, 82 years ago, Kristallnacht happened. It was the Nazis' warning shot across the bow of our human civilization after four years of a modern-day assault on those same values by Donald Trump. Okay, now I'm going to use an extreme example. Um, think about Hitler. There's so many stunning parallels to what Hitler was doing. Describing Hitler's psychological profile, and this only pertains to Adolf Hitler. There is so much that is resonant of the Third Reich in this administration. Many tendencies like Adolf Hitler. Does this look like Germany in 1932? We're getting close. And this only pertains to Adolf Hitler and pertains to nobody else. 90% of what he says, I'm like, this guy gets it. If you've read anything about the rise of the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler, you will see the parallels. Donald Trump is a true psychopath. He's like Hitler or Stalin. That sounds a lot like a certain leader that killed members of my family and about six million other uh, Jews. Now, of course, Wolf Blitzer also reacted to these comments, uh, Cut 23. I don't care, I don't care what they may think of me. And of course, Republicans are so stupid, they react to this. They, they condemn MTG. Oh my, oh, we condemn her. Oh, this is so terrible. Instead of striking back like Trump taught them to do, because the thing about the Democrats, we always have to remember in the left, all their tears are lies. All their tears are lies. Whenever they're crying, they're lying. You know, I mean, that's, that's what you know. Every time they're upset about something, they're lying. They should have just said, you know, look, you do this all the time. She made a silly statement, but you're still wrong about the mask. They should have gone right back on the attack. The thing about it, you know, the, they, the Democrats are the evil party, but it's easier for them to be the evil party when the Republicans are the stupid party and the Republicans are the stupid party. However, however, to get back to my main point, there's one thing we have to concede, and that is, though, you know, right-wing anti-Semites are mostly ticky, burning nutbags who are completely, you know, uh, thrown out of the Republican Party, and the left-wing anti-Semites are in Congress, although that's true, there is no side to anti-Semitism. It is on both sides. This is a hatred that knows no sides. It's on both of us. I've talked about it before. I won't go into it again, but Jews have been murdered, oppressed, hounded out of every country. Uh, anyone, blacks, gays, who think that they are the, the great victims of the world, they're amateurs compared to the Jews. Jews still, this is still true. Jews account for less than 2% of the American uh, population, but the FBI hate crime statistics report shows that they are 60%, the 60% of religious-based hate crimes in 2019, targeted Jews, which is an increase of 14%. So while they're talking about, oh, police are nasty to black people, this is where the hatred is all going. And, you know, again, again, it's all about God. And if you don't understand it, it's about God. You're doing what Greenblatt did. You're looking right through the truth into, you know, you're basically your own mind. You're looking into some kind of theory that you have about things. This is what it's about. You know, man's search for God is more basic than sex. It is more central to our, to our lives and to history. Whether God is there or not, it doesn't matter. Our relationship with God, whether it's a complete fantasy or not, is at the center of our world and our history, and we do, don't understand it. For most of Christian, uh, Christian history, the idea was that Jews in rejecting Christ had been thrown out of their they're being the chosen people and been thrown out and had been replaced by Christians. And that was called uh, supersessionism or re replacement theology. And it really didn't fade as a central doctrine of the church until the Holocaust when Christians became, as they should have been, ashamed of it. Paul, Paul's view of this, St. Paul's view of this is much more complicated. Uh, he talked about the fact that the, in rejecting Jesus, some Jews had fallen away. He says, if some of the branches were broken off from the vine, right, this is the vine of God, he says, and you Gentiles 
were grafted in among the others, the other Jews, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And of course, the root is God, but it's the spirit of God flowing up through the Jews. This is the thing. When Jesus says in the Bible, you are the light of the world, when he says you are the salt of the earth, he is talking to the Jews. He's not talking to your minister. He's not talking to the Presbyterians. He's not talking to the Catholics. He is talking to the Jews. And yes, the Jews like sheep go astray. This is what the whole Bible is about. The Bible is about the Jews and how stubborn they are and how they keep going wrong. And God gets angry at them. And that all that is true. But God does not break his promises. He never breaks his covenants. And the Jews are still, as I have often said, part of the body of Christ, even if they're the part of the body of Christ that doubts, even if they're the part of the part of the body of Christ that is struggling with faith in, in, in their own in their own savior, all right? However, however, the, in the story of the Jews, the, the Bible is the history of a cycle, right? It's the history of God being thrown out by man, being rejected by man in the garden, coming back in, choosing a man, Abraham, and through him coming back into the world through the history of the Jews. And the history is the story of their rise to empire and their fall and their conquest. And then at that point is when Jesus is born and he reenacts and incarnates that history. This is all through the Bible, the 12 apostles or the 12 tribes, uh, the language that's used in the Bible when Jesus is baptized is the same language that's used at the creation of the world in Genesis. It's all, it all reflects back. And of course, the Passover, which is the great formative moment in Jewish history is reenacted when Jesus, instead of a lamb in, in the Passover, they sacrifice a lamb and they paint blood on the door. So the angel of death passes over the Jews in Jesus's death, his blood becomes the blood of the sacrifice and the angel of death passes all over all of us who have faith. Jesus is Jewish, is Jewish history made individual, so it is given to all of us so we can become part of the Jewish story, but only part of the Jewish story. And the Jews remain who they are. And, they, and that, is why, that is why Jesus has turned, turned all of Western society into something like Judaism, right? It's, it's, something like, it's something like Greece, but it's also something like Judaism. And all of us are like this. All of us are thinking about Jesus. We can't think without Jesus. We can't feel without him. When blacks say, oh, we're victims, and so we have a, you know, black leftists, I should say, say that we're victims and therefore we should be elevated, that's a Jesus thought, right? When uh, Jefferson says all men are created equal, that's a Jesus thought. You do not get there. Nobody else got there, only the people who followed that faith. And Nietzsche famously blamed Christianity for turning around the natural order of things where the powerful rule, where the powerful set the rules, where the ubermensch comes and creates new morality. He blames Christianity for bringing a slave mentality uh, into the West. It, you know, it's more complicated than that, but that's essentially what he's saying. And Nietzsche is right. Nietzsche is right. Jesus does upset the natural order. The natural order is that the powerful rule over the weak. The powerful get everything. The rich get everything. And the poor get nothing. And the weak are crushed underfoot. And that's why Ayn Rand hated the cross. She hated the cross. She wanted to replace the cross with the dollar bill. She thought it was only natural that the powerful people become rich and the rich people are the most important people. And the rest are basically, you know, just helots in their wake, in their service. But the idea that the poor belong to God and that the suffering have God's company is something that was put on, was brought into Western thought by the Jews and is still here and is why people hate them, right? With our natural urge to power, 
with our natural desire to worship the powerful, with our natural urge to give away the freedom that God means us to have, we hate the Jews. We want to be ourselves rather than Christ. We want to live out our own desires rather than Christ's desire for us. We want to worship power, money, and celebrity. Uh, We replace God by violating his laws of creation. We want to make the laws of creation, which is why the people, the same people who believe that abortion is a good thing or that you can magically transform your gender or that they can force fairness on the world by just having all the power and sacrificing the principle of freedom, all of those people end up hating the Jews because the Jews brought God into the world and remind us of God. And because we are, to some extent, in some way, the Jews, and we wish we could get rid of it. We wish we could make it stop. In the end, we hate Jews because we hate ourselves, and we hate ourselves because we hate God, and we hate him because we ain't him. We hate him because we want to have the power that he has. We want to be the uh, arbiters of good and evil. We want to remake the world into our image instead of his image. And And we're helpless without him. We literally can't even breathe without him. Any path we take, but the path of Christ, we end up hating the Jews, which is why I always say anti-Semitism is the devil's flagpole. When you see it, you know his camp is there. So as you know, I'm homeless. You know this because I keep whining and complaining about it, and I plan to keep doing that by golly, until I have a home. And when I do have a home, there's going to be Ring security on that thing because Ring lets me know what is going on at your home all the time. It's peace of mind knowing that your home is protected. The best thing about it, besides Ring being a powerful asset for your home, is that Ring is also an affordable whole home security system you can easily install yourself. It's never been more important to be able to see who's there or what's happening anytime around the house, inside or outside. You can see it all with one simple app, no matter where you are. With Ring, my family and I can keep an eye on our home no matter where we are, right from our phone, talk to anybody who is there at any time from any place. It is just terrific. Start protecting your home today with Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com slash Clavin to get your Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Ring.com slash Clavin. And his name is John Cena. <laughs> You know, that thing, I'm going to get to him in just a second. That thing with Wolf Blitzer, though, you know, where he gets he gets choked up about this ridiculous thing. When I say all the all leftist tears are lies, I, it's it's so true. I mean, they say, oh, boohoo, we care about racism and then they won't send, uh, you know, minority kids back to school because they're kowtowing to the teachers union. And then they say, oh, boohoo, we mustn't talk about the fact that we've destroyed these children's lives because that would stigmatize the children. Right. And, you know, they say they care about the children in cages. Oh, oh, we care about the children in cages. There's more children in cages now than during. Here's the New York Times, a former newspaper writing about the children in cages. House Democrats led angry efforts to denounce the Trump administration's treatment of migrant children with the issue bedeviling President Biden. They are voicing worries privately. Oh, yeah, because they care so, so deeply because all their tears are lies. This thing about John Cena, this is what gets me. Because Jeremy, uh, the God King on uh, backstage, was giving me stick about it that I was letting him off the hook. But it's not. It's not. It's because I'm not letting him off the hook. I'm just pointing out that he's the famous face, but he represents something else. What happened, obviously, for those who don't know, or haven't been paying attention, he was uh, 
promoting Fast and Furious in China. And apparently he speaks Chinese. And he, in one of these interviews, he called Taiwan a country. Now, Taiwan is a country. It is a better country than China, the mainland China. It's called the Republic of China. Uh, this is where Chiang Kai-shek escaped with his nationalists after Mao Zedong took over China. And the Chinese don't want it to be recognized. And America has always kind of played it both ways. We've kind of said, said we recognize it, but we don't really recognize it. And he said it was a country in an interview. Uh, and then he came out and apologized in Chinese. This is what he said. Uh, and you probably understand most of that. Uh, he's, uh, that han, 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 han means in Chinese means cuck. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm, I am such a cuck, 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 cuck. You know, I, I have to say, I, just to take a moment to say that I always enjoyed the Fast and Furious uh, franchise because uh, all the cool, tough guys in it have shaved heads. You know, there's uh, The Rock and Jason Statham and Vin Diesel, like every, and I actually believe that it is a secret Clavenon franchise that they're sending a message uh, to people. You know, how some people hold up Q, you know, Q for QAnon. I think this is the shaved head uh, sending a kind of secret message of Clavenon. In fact, what, what I think we should do is go on the other guy's shows on there. You know, you don't have to listen to them because that's a waste of time, but like go on the other guy's shows on the Daily Wire and uh, on, on YouTube and just, and just leave a, a shaved head with a K on it and see if we can recruit some, some people into this. Here's my point about this, though. Here's my point about this. My point is it's fun to pick on John Cena, and it's fun that this tough guy with the big muscles and all this is actually uh, a spineless uh, cuck. But it's not him. It's, it's Universal, and it's Comcast, right? Universal is putting out the picture. Comcast owns Universal, which also owns NBC and parts of AT&T. Uh, these are the people who killed... The Harvey Weinstein story, right, at NBC, this is where NBC were the people who threw out Ronan Farrow. So Harvey Weinstein was raping people and going around chasing women around and doing horrible, really uh, disgusting things. I mean, and everybody knew, it, every, not everybody knew about the girls, but everybody knew about the bullying and the meanness and all this stuff. And they were constantly thanking him. Everybody knew and most people knew about the women. But Universal shut it down, right? John Cena is not going to go again. You know, he's, they sign contracts. I know we think, oh, these guys are stars. They can do anything. But no, they sign uh, contracts saying they can't say anything to hurt the franchise. He wants this job. He doesn't want to be thrown out of the job. We should be blaming the people who are to blame, which is the pow people in power. And that's not letting him off the hook. I mean, it's a sh he did a shameful thing, but he's doing it at the behest of these powerful, powerful companies. You know, this film, this F9, they're calling it, Fast and Furious 9, it's amazing that the franchise has gone on that long. Is, it took in $163 million, reading from the Daily Wire, from just eight foreign markets, a weekend haul that was as strong as major international debuts in the pre-pandemic era and marked the biggest movie opening since the COVID-19 outbreak began. The figure had the entertainment media humming. There was just one problem. More than 80% of those earnings, $136 million bucks, came from China, right? According to a report from the human rights organization Penn, in 2019 alone, three blockbusters, Avengers, Endgame from Disney, Spider-Man, Far From 
from home, Columbia Pictures and Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw from Universal earn more in China than in the United States. These guys are making movies for China. And, you know, this means all these people like China, you know, and obviously I'm not talking about the Chinese people. I'm talking about the government. China is a dictatorship. It is a crushing dictatorship. It is a place where if you complain, you disappear. It is a place where people are controlled by social rankings. It's a place where Uyghur Muslims are put in concentration camps. It is brutal. I mean, they have forced, tied down women and forced them to have abortions to keep their populations low. It is, it is a brutal authoritarian country that cheats economically on people. So all I'm saying about this is when actors and actresses get up at the Oscars and they tell us about what fools we were to elect Donald Trump, and when they tear up and they cry, all their tears are lies. Every All their moral preening is baloney. All of it. All of it. And, you know, I love the movies. I love these movies. I, I was watching, what was I watching? The Woman in the Window, which is a kind of a B movie, but it had all this amazing talent in it. It had every single person was played by a big actor. Uh, Amy Adams and Julian Moore are in it. It's like watching two, watching these two actresses and they were one scene together. It's like watching two heavyweights. They're terrific. It's watching two heavyweights slug each other in, in the ring. It's, it's brilliant. I love it. It's just when they get up and start telling me about their politics and telling me how to understand race and telling me all the things that America has done wrong. It's all garbage. And I think, you know, and it's true of all of these guys, all these businesses. You know, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was near Chinatown, and there's all these big signs on this bank saying, you know, don't be racist to Asian people. And I thought, who, you know, if you can afford that sign, you're doing business with China. Shut up, you know? This is one of the most tolerant countries on earth. If you're a Chinese American, you're an American. That's, there's nowhere else that's true. There's nowhere else you become an American. It's like, yeah, whatever, you're an American. You know, can you talk English? Can you be an American? Can you, can you run a business? You're in. We really don't care. And the incidences of Asian uh, of Asian violence that have sparked up are not about any kind of particular uh, deep racism. They're about social relations, basically by between Asians and blacks. It's the Jews is a problem. Jew hatred is a problem. This is not a problem. And if it's a problem, you're not the ones who should be lecturing me. This is what drives me crazy about it. It's like every time everything they cry about. You know, it's it's the exact same thing with the story about the Chinese virus, right? A year ago, we started to suspect, we had good reason to suspect that the Chinese virus or the Kung flu or the flu Manchu or, you know, Mu flu pork, whatever you want to call it, was created in a Wuhan lab where they're doing where they're strengthening these viruses, probably so they can kill us all. You know, that's probably why they say as well, it makes it easier to uh, explore the virus, especially when it's killing Americans. But we pretty well suspected this. And yet not only was Dr. Well, here's Dr. Fauci lying about it. This is cut 10. If you look at the evolution of the virus in bats and what's out there now, it's very, very strongly leaning towards this could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated, the way the mutations have naturally evolved. Someone will say, well, maybe somebody took it from the wild, put it in the lab, and then it escaped from the lab. But that means it was in the wild to begin with. So, you know, utterly absurd. But of course, the press just jumped on board, right? 
not just the press, not just the media calling it hoax, Vox calling it a hoax, all these people calling it a hoax, all the fact checkers calling it a hoax, but you were banned on Facebook. You were labeled on Facebook as, as putting out false information. If you said, you know what, I think this is, yeah, I think this is was made in a lab. Oh, no, it was wrong. It's bigoted to say it's anti-Asian. You know, they just will say anything to stop the truth from coming out. So why is Facebook now, Facebook has now announced that it will no longer do that because the Democrats say it's okay. The Democrats say, you know, Facebook and all the other big tech guys are suing Ron DeSantis in Florida because Ron DeSantis is pushing a law where they're not allowed to cancel candidates in an election race. They're not allowed to censor speech during an election in Florida. And they're saying, well, what do you want, a state-run internet? It's already a state-run internet. What they don't want is a red state-run internet, right? So why is the media doing this? Why is the media doing this? Here's a guy named Willis Krumholz, a writer at The Federalist. He just makes this point. He says, Vox is owned by NBC, which owns MSNBC, which is owned by Comcast. Comcast and NBC have extensive business ties to China. Thomson Reuters has sales and offices in China. ABC is owned by Walt Disney, which has extensive ties to China. Now this is owned by Dis- now this is owned by Discovery, which has business in China. The Washington Post is owned by Amazon, which via Amazon Web Services has ties to China. CNN is owned by AT&T. Guess what? Has business ties to China. The analysis isn't as simple as examining a simple percent of company revenues because China sales are often growing faster or are projected to grow faster. These parts of the business carry disproportionately more Wait, (laughs) all I'm saying about these guys is when they lecture us about our terrible racism in this country, where we're putting Uyghurs in concentration camps, oh no, that's not us. When they lecture us about the way we treat black people by, you know, doing terrible things to them, like electing them president, you know, what that, what, how on earth, what kind of cruelty is that? What, how, how could do that to a black man? You know, this is a place where I, I think that black America is one of the richest countries. It may be, I think, the 15th richest country on earth. Black America may be the 15th richest country on earth. It's somewhere around there. I'm speaking from memory, but it's somewhere around there. This is a good country for people. And why are these people lecturing us? Why are these people who are turning a blind eye to what is being done to people in China? Why are these people who will kowtow to them, apologize to them, send out these poor actors to get laughed at while they sit back there? Yeah, they're laughing at John Cena, but I'm counting my money here. I'm in great shape. You know, I I watched this great doc documentary the other day called Uncle Tom. And I really, I highly recommend this. And I kind of was reluctant to watch it. It's it's made in part by Larry Elder. And I was a little bit reluctant to watch it because it's got Larry Elder and Candace Owens and uh, Jesse Lee Peterson and Herman Cain, all these people that I love, but but I know what they have to say. So I thought, well, I don't really need to watch this guy. I know what I have to say. It's a terrific movie. It is riveting. It's touching. It's funny. I highly recommend it. My favorite scene in it, now I always love Jesse Lee Peterson, but my favorite scene in it is Herman Cain because he, he just is overflowing with this kind of Christian hilarity. You know, he's just everything makes him laugh and he's just got ebullient and he's just as great. And black conservatives get called things by leftists, especially white leftists, that are utterly repellent, just nauseating racist uh, slurs that they feel free 
to hurl at black people if they're conservatives. Like, how dare you think for yourself? How dare you not think like, you know, white people are telling you to think? It is, it is genuinely disgusting. And I've heard it myself, by the way. I've been in conversations with leftists. I've heard them say things that I, I, my jaw dropped. And if I said them, Jeremy would come in here and take me off the air because they're disgusting. Who would say them, you know, except that leftists, white as snow, leftists feel absolutely justified in calling these guys, these men, most of them terrific guys. These are all guys I really like a lot and very much admire and respect. They feel free to call them names. So they ask Herman Cain, <laughs> how do you feel when people call you these horrible, horrible names? And Cain just bursts into laughing. And he says, I'm going to quote my father. And his father was obviously a very wise man, but he was an unlearned man, right? He was an unlearned man. And he said, my father used to say, I doesn't care. <laughs> That's what Herman Cain said. I said, I doesn't care. And that has immediately become my instantaneous reaction to all leftist hysterics, weeping about race, weeping about children in cages, weeping about feminism. Oh, the Me Too movement is so important until Joe Biden is plausibly accused of throwing a woman against the world a wall and jamming his hand up or then suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. I doesn't care. I doesn't care because all their tears are lies, but they do taste so very, very good. So I made my will a long time ago because at my age you could go like that and also I don't have any money. But I wish there had been trustandwill.com. At trustandwill.com, setting up an estate plan is simple, convenient, and secure. For as little as $39, you can nominate guardians for your children, determine who gets your stuff, plan for future medical care, all from the comfort of your home. Trust and will documents are designed by estate planning experts and customized for the state you live in. And with live customer support seven days a week, trustandwill.com's team is available to answer any questions you have while setting up your plan. Trust and Will is a most trusted name in online estate planning, the category leader on Trustpilot, and they've helped hundreds of thousands of people protect their families, assets, and legacy. I really do wish they had had this. It would have been so much easier you can gain peace of mind at trustandwill.com slash Clavin and get 10% off plus free shipping of your customized legal documents. Don't wait. Go right now. This is really important. Get 10% off plus free shipping at trustandwill.com slash Clavin, trustandwill.com slash Clavin. So I had an exchange last week with Jordan Peterson that a lot of people or some people didn't quite get, I think. We were talking about God and faith in God, and uh, Jordan was talking about how hard it is to know anything. And I said, well, they call it faith, not knowledge. And a lot of people said, well, you know, I do know there's a God, but it's a particular kind of knowledge. And that was what we were discussing. That was what we were kind of going back and forth about that. I, I think that, it, you know, analysis is a way of thinking, but it's not the only way of thinking. It's not the only way we know the truth. I don't know that I love my wife through analysis, and I don't know, even though analysis does help me to understand, it helps me to get there. Uh, if, for instance, uh, I see snow and I see footprints in the snow, I know somebody has gone there. I reason that somebody has gone there. But in order to believe that my reason is true, I need some other faculty of faith to say, yes, my reason does actually apply to the world. My reason is not just a social construct. It's not a false consciousness. It actually is a um, it, it actually has a relationship to the world, just like mathematics has a relationship to the world. There's this battle, which I think is really fascinating, between what is often called the classic 
and the romantic, two different ways of looking at the world. And I've talked a lot about romanticism because I'm a modified uh, romantic, uh, I would say a conservative romantic. But the classic is also a very important way that we have seen things, especially in the West. And what classicism is, is a very direct experience of the world around you, including the mysterious world around you. It's not that there's no mystery in classicism. It's that it's a very direct representation of what people experience. There's a famous literary critic named M.H. Abrams uh, who said the difference between classicism and romanticism in the arts is the difference between a mirror and a lamp. Hamlet said that the arts should hold the mirror up to nature, but the romantics said, well, really, the poet is a lamp that illuminates nature because consciousness is part of creation. And Hamlet almost invents that. Hamlet almost invents the idea that we can't really know things because our our mind changes the way we see things. So just, just to give you an example of this, uh, just read a little piece of a poem by Pindar. Uh, Pindarus was an ancient Greek lyric poet, so he was a good representation of cl- the classic. And he's also kind of a poet who's regarded as n- not that original, that he kind of does he kind of does things that are just memes in Greek thought. And so it's a good example of what you see. And here's a, a poem he wrote about a victory procession after the Olympic Games. And he's talking about the procession. He says, among them are the muses for everywhere to flute and string. The young girls are dancing in their hair, the gold leaves of the bay. The dance whirls them away. Age or disease, no toil, battle or ill days luck can touch them. They are holy. They will outlast time, exempted from the anger of the goddess and all decay, okay? Now, Keats wrote a very similar passage. John Keats, one of the greatest of the, possibly the greatest of the Romantic poets uh, in the early 19th century, wrote uh, the famous poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, where he described a very similar scene, but he described it on the urn. So it was frozen. And the thing that that made these people immortal was that they were frozen on this urn. And for a moment in his mind, he kind of enters into that eternity of frozenness. And he talks about how happy the lovers are here because they will, uh, they'll never finish the kiss that they're in uh, and how happy uh, the, the bows are. He says, he says, happy, more happy love, more happy, happy love forever warm and still to be enjoyed forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above. But by the end of the poem, he steps out of the urn and the urn travels on into time, leaving him behind to die, essentially. And this is where we get the famous line where he says, uh, when old age, he's talking to the urn, he says, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man to whom thou sayest, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all you need to know. In other words, the human experience in Romanticism, the human experience, the human co-creation of reality uh, becomes an issue, and it starts to create questions and problems. Goethe, who is one of the famous uh, creators of Romanticism with a book called The Sorrows of Young Werther, later renounced Romanticism, and he said the classical is healthy, uh, romantic is sickness. Well, why did he say that? Why did he say that looking at the way that people feel about reality and how they co-create reality is a sickness? And the answer is pretty clear. 
Romanticism starts by questioning the role of consciousness in the creation of reality, but it can end in questioning whether reality is there itself. If I feel like a woman, do I suddenly become a woman? If I'm co-creating reality, why can't I change my gender? Why can't I say that aborting a baby is right instead of wrong? And this is the sickness, uh, the romantic sickness that Marxism has been playing off for all these years. You think you're happy working and having a job and having dignity and being self-supporting, but really that's false consciousness. You are actually oppressed. And This is why guys like Jonah Goldberg and Steven Pinker are always railing against Romanticism. But Romanticism came into being after the French Revolution, or during, really around the same time as the French Revolution, I should say, when they they were touting the age of reason. Everything was going to be reason. All would be reasonable. And of course, the age of reason ended in a reign of terror because we don't just know the world through reason. We do know the world through some kind of emotional engagement with it that gives us reality. And it's very difficult to know where that starts and where it begins. And another place you see this reflected in the arts, this is actually a really good example. In America, where our big art for the last hundred years has been the movies, you saw it in acting. We went from classical acting to romantic acting. And I'll show you what I mean. Here's a, a clip uh, from a great movie, one of my favorite movies, Ben-Hur. It was 1959. And this change came right around now, right as we move from the late 50s into the 60s. You see this change from classical acting to romantic acting. And one of Charlton Heston's, I think, big griefs, I've read a lot about Charlton Heston and his, his sense of failure, even in his great success. I think that Charlton Heston was a classical actor at a moment when classicism was dying. And here's the scene in Ben-Hur when he's talking to his Roman friend. He's the Jew, Ben-Hur, and he is Judah Ben-Hur. And he is talking to his Roman friend and they realize they can't be friends anymore because one represents Rome and Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur is loyal to the Jews. I would do anything for you, Messiah, except betray my own people. In the name of all the gods, Judah, what do the lives of a few Jews mean to you? If I cannot persuade them, that does not mean I would help you murder them. Besides, you must understand this, Marcella. I believe in the past of my people and in their future. Future? You are a conquered people. You may conquer the land. You may slaughter the people. But that is not the end. We will rise again. Uh, You live on dead dreams. You live on the myths of the past. The glory of Solomon is gone. Do you think it will return? Joshua will not rise again to save you, nor David. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. Don't be a fool. Look to Rome. I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. Great movie. I I just wanted to keep going. I disappear into it. But, But those are two guys representing ideas, right? They're arguing about ideas. They're representing the things these people believe. We're not really thinking about whether Judah Ben-Hur wants to sleep with his mother. We're not really thinking about whether his Roman friend, uh, you know, has some kind of neurosis. We're thinking about what they are doing in the world, in this active world, in this action. 
So I will bet you have never looked at the interest rate on your credit card. It is so high, it will make your eyeballs knock together in your head. And if you're looking for a way to save some extra money, one good way to start would be paying less interest on your credit card balances. You can refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate at the same time. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.95% APR with auto pay and excellent credit lower than the average credit card interest rate, which is over 18% APR. I kid you not. There are no fees. You can get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Andrew. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Andrew. This is subject to credit approval. Rates range from 5.95% APR to 19.99% APR and include 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Andrew for more information. Compare this to only a few years later, 1962, Lawrence of Arabia comes out. And Lawrence of Arabia is one of the true classics of the cinema. It is just a beautiful, beautiful film about T. Lawrence and his role in World War uh, I and bringing the Arabs into the fight for England. And T. Lawrence was fam- famously a gay uh, masochist. He got involved with... Uh, you know, the the whipping scene in England. I, I think everybody in England enjoys being whipped. I always noticed that when they would ha- advertise uh, prostitutes in the phone booths, they had these phone cards advertising prostitutes, they were all carrying whips. And I used to say, like, that, doesn't anybody, like, not want to get hit? <laughs> like, it's like, I just want to have sex, just don't hit me. But anyway, Lawrence of Arabia was apparently one of these guys. And this is a famous scene in this movie where he has been kind of idealistic. He's been marshalling these forces for Britain, and he is captured by a Turkish official the bay, the Turkish bay, and he doesn't know who he is. He thinks he's just, he's pretending he's just an ordinary guy, but the Turkish bay sees that he is blue-eyed and he gets suspicious. The other thing that we see, this is Jose Ferreira's playing the the bay. The other thing is we see is the the bay is gay and he likes Lawrence and he strips off his clothes and he starts to admire his body. And here is the scene in which Lawrence is essentially confronted with his own homosexuality uh, and reacts by punching the bay. Where did you get that? Oh, uh, it's old, Fendi. No, no, this is recent. You are a deserter. No, Fendi. Yes, you are a deserter. But from which army? Not that it matters at all. A man cannot be always in uniform. Your skin is very fair. Oh, they take him off and they whip him, and of course it turns him on, and he later comes in and says the only reality is the flesh. And now he becomes a sadistic uh, 
fighter. His, his whole battle ethos changes. His whole ethos of what he's doing in the field changes. And once again, we see is when I started this show and I was talking about Stephen Greenblatt's description of Augustine, we see that the, instead of dealing with the ideas, instead of Ben-Hur saying, no, you know, I am loyal to my people, and the Roman guy saying, no, Rome is the future, and you should go forward with Rome, we're seeing how this internal emotional landscape changes the outer landscape and thereby changes history. And there's truth to that, of course. There's truth to people being tormented and people being neurotic and people being unhappy and doing things because of that. But there's also a, a real truth to the fact that certain ideas strike us as true and guide us and inspire us and have us do what, you know, have us do the things that we do. And so there's some kind of balance between the classic and the romantic where the truth lies. But ultimately, as we go forward in American acting, we then go from this point to Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando recreates acting and in the, uh, in the method system where you go into yourself and you discover uh, who you are and what you feel, and that become, and then you become the character essentially. Uh, at the fame, Lawrence Olivier's famous line about this is, "Why not just try acting? It's so much easier." But here is the famous. I mean, this is one of possibly the most famous scenes in all of movies when he's talking to his brother Rod Steiger, also a great method actor, uh, about the fact that he betrayed him. He was going to be a boxer, and now he's just a punk because Rod Steiger made him throw a fight. This is one of the most famous scenes in the movies. Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charles. I could have been a contender, one of the most famous lines in American movies. Uh, but, but obviously what you're seeing is this kind of inner man governing everything. And you can understand how that becomes the sickness that we're in today, where essentially, to, to coin a phrase, feelings don't care about your facts, that the inner man is defining the world instead of the world helping to define. Now, I, I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, I believe that we are in a dance of co-creation with reality, that we create good and beauty as we know it on Earth in the same way we create the colors of the rainbow by seeing them, but we can't create just any colors. We are responsible to reality and we can't call good evil or evil good because if we do, we end up hating God and killing Jews. And, and I think that that is the balance that we're looking for and the balance that we've lost. And that's struggle between classicism and romanticism is at the core, at the core of Western culture and of our history. One of the biggest problems facing the country today is loneliness. And the reason so many men, I think, are lonely is because they don't say rockauto.com. The minute you say rockauto.com, the women flock around because they know you're smart enough not to go to the car parts store and wait around forever for somebody to tell you something that you could find out yourself online. You instead are smart enough to say rockauto.com in that incredibly appealing way and look on your computer 
for the auto and body parts you need. They've got parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They are so much easier than going out. They always offer the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear. They're a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers and look how appealing you will become. Just by saying it, just say rockauto.com and then go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box? So they know we sent you. And some of you are now saying, well, wait a minute. You know, all through these ads on the show, you've been saying Clavin, Clavin. How, how, how do you spell Clavin? Here it is for you. If you've been putting off entering to win a free trip to the Daily Wire studio to meet Candace Owens and see her live show, then hurry. This is your last chance. If you sign up now as a Daily Wire member with code VIP, you'll get 20% off your new membership and be automatically entered for a chance to win a trip for two to the Daily Wire studios to see Candace live. This deal ends on Memorial Day, so do not wait another minute. Not only will you be meeting Candace, you'll be getting an inside look at her studio and front row seats to watch her take down leftists live and in action on her talk show, Candace. You're not going to get another chance, so don't sleep on it. Go enter now to win two VIP tickets to a Candace, Candace VIP pass now at dailywire.com slash subscribe using code VIP for 20% off. So I was talking to the God King last night and he was telling me some of his plans for world domination. And you know, he is really doing this thing. It is amazing. We've been moving so fast. We released our first feature film. We've struck up a movie deal with Gina Carano. We launched the Candace Owens talk show. This is all within the last six months. We're moving at the speed of light and I'm excited for the future. I'm really happy to be a part of it. And I want you guys to be a part of it too, and we want to thank you for making it all possible. So we want to continue to include you in our future plans. Every day on my show, I talk about a lot of amazing products and services from sponsors I love. I use them myself, but we want to get to know you better so we can choose our sponsors with you in mind. So go to dailywire.com slash Clavin and fill out my audience survey to tell us a little more about yourself and to sweeten the whole experience. Those of you that complete the survey will be entered to win a $1,000 gift card, but you can only take the survey once per Daily Wire show. So if you want to increase your chances of winning a thousand bucks, go listen to Ben, Michael Knowles, or Matt Walsh to get access to their surveys as well. Again, my survey link is dailywire.com slash Clavin. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Liz Wheeler has interviewed me at least a dozen times. And so I wanted to take revenge on her. She, uh, you know her from uh, OAN. She was had that show Tipping Point with Liz Wheeler. But now she's got her own podcast, The Liz Wheeler Show. Uh, she's She is really one of the top-notch commentators, and I'm delighted to see her. She's got a new baby and everything. I don't think the baby is with her. But uh, Liz, are you there? 
I am. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say, I'm a little worried if you're going to seek revenge on me, because I think the last time we talked, I made you publicly admit that I was right to something. You you were right. I know, because I, <laughs> I said you were being paranoid. But nowadays, paranoia is actually. <laughs> That's right. exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a you have a new show. You have a new baby, right? Yes. Yes. And, so exciting. This has been a crazy week launching the show, juggling the baby. I mean, it's it's living the dream right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot to do. So what is what's going to be the center of the show? I mean, you're going to you have an approach. I mean, you're really good at all these different ideas and all these different areas. But what do you feel right now is the center, the central thing we should all be talking about and thinking about? If you keep complimenting me like this, your producer is going to have to change the frame because my head's going to blow up bigger sizes. No, I'm hoping that this podcast, that this new video podcast, first of all, I'm really excited that it's a video podcast because that format, as you know, allows me to have a more personal connection with my audience, which is something that I've been wanting for a long time. But it's going to focus on a couple of things. It's going to focus on my trademark research because that's really the best way to defeat the radical left is to be smarter than them, to be more educated than them, to have a bigger arsenal of facts than they do, which is it's it's maybe not hard intellectually, but it is hard in the sense that they certainly come prepared with their talking points. So I really want my podcast to be a resource for people where they can say, well, is this true? Is this what are the facts? Is this reality? And they know that they can tune in. They can listen to me when they're driving to work. They can turn this on when they're cooking dinner and they can watch as we just unpack what is reality. And we're going to do it in a way that's not playing by the left's rules. I'm going to do it just looking is this delusion that's being peddled by the left or is this the reality? I'm not going to back down to whether it's corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or squishy establishment Republicans. Um, we're just going to say it how it is. No, you were always a very hard line. I have to say, I've always <laughs> admired that. What, but what's the, what, what's the central issue we're facing? I mean, if you had to say one thing, if you had to take one thing that you could change by snapping your fingers, what would it be? Oh, probably the breakdown of the family. I think that's mm. the root of, I think that's the root of a lot of the bad things that are happening in our culture. And I am a big believer that the culture war is central to, you know, our society. It's central to our freedom because the old adage, we've heard it a hundred times, a thousand times probably, and we almost become numb to hearing it. But the old adage that politics is downstream of culture, that that really is true. And if we sacrifice, surrender the culture to the radical left, then we're not going to win the political battles. We're going to have loss before we even start. And conservatives, and I, I do point the finger at our own side, our own movement, not just our not just our elected officials, but the people in our movement as well. For the past 60, 70 years, we've really acquiesced and surrendered many of the cultural institutions in our nation that underpin our moral society. And that includes the family and marriage, and it extends to the public school system and the university system, to religious freedom, to you know Hollywood, movies, books, music, entertainment. And we've allowed the left to take over those institutions to the point that we are back on our heels. We're playing defense. And so we not only have to fight the culture war, the central part of the culture war is the family. So, you know, I was, I was just watching this terrific documentary called Uncle Tom, and there's a lot of black conservatives talking about the destruction of the black family by leftist programs, by the Great Society and losing fathers. And I, a lot of times I look at uh, young guys and I do think, you know, when a guy gets married, he feels like he's given up his freedom. This is something that is generally true of guys. But in the old days, in my day, when you got married, you also felt that you were getting something of infinite value, which was getting somebody who would give you a home give you some place where you belonged and and where you were uh, you, you were the father you had authority you had some 
a lot of that's gone. I mean, it seems to me that if you marry someone who's working just as hard as you are, if you're marrying someone who is uh, not as interested in making a home as as you might as you might want a home, what are you getting? I mean, what is in it for guys now to become fathers, to become husbands? Well, I think if you're coming at it from a Christian perspective, then you get to live out some of the mystical union between God and his church. And I know that as a Catholic, as Christians, that's what we believe, that marriage is this peak, if you will, into this love that God has for his bride, which is his church, that we can't fully understand while we're here on earth. And God gives us this union between man and woman and says, love each other the way that I love my church, whether that's the respect, whether that's the, you know, the all controversial term of submission, which we know does not mean subservient. Um, he tells us that this is a peek into the union between you, between us as God's children and God. And so it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a situation where you're talking about a 1950s housewife who cleans the house in her high heels and has her husband's dinner on the table for him when he comes home from work every day. That's fine if that's what you want to do, but it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be practically set up like that for you to have this really solid and I'm talking about culturally solid in addition to spiritually, this really culturally solid institution that prevents a lot of societal ills, right? You don't have people on welfare as often um, when they're married. You don't have people that are mentally ill. You don't have people that are physically ill as often when they're married. You don't have people that are committing crimes as often as uh, when they are married. And when it comes to children, children are, I think, 82% less likely to live in poverty if they have a married mother and father. This yeah. institution is advantageous to our society in literally every single aspect, no matter how we're looking at it. And yet we've we've thrown it to the side. We've allowed communists who want the destruction of the family because they want people dependent on government to tear this down. We've allowed feminists who, for who knows what reason, whether it's self-hatred, whether it's abuse, whether it's misunderstanding of empowerment, we've let all these different radical groups tear down the institution of the family and it's cost us our culture. That, you know, that's, first of all, that it's a great answer, the answer that it is a spiritual relationship and a peek into spirituality, because I found that to be literally the case. I mean, one of the reasons I came to God was understanding that this love that I was experiencing went far beyond this marriage, and the marriage was a symbol of something, and I was living that symbol. It, it, it actually does happen. It actually does work in real life. Putting the left aside for a minute, I, and how I wish we could, something something seems to have gone terribly wrong with the internet, with social media, with the dissolution, uh, the distancing of one from one another in physical terms, uh, guys watching pornography and actually having more fun with pornography than with a human being, uh, people thinking that they are friends, people bullying each other. Is there, is there any way around this or is this our fate? No, I mean, it, it comes back to the same cultural institutions, right? So one of the reasons that so many men are addicted to pornography or turn to pornography is because of a godlessness in our society. The reason, in my opinion, that godlessness is on the rise is because you're no longer allowed to talk about God. You're no lo longer allowed yeah. to talk about faith in the public sphere. You're not allowed to even say the word God in Pledge of Allegiance, during the Pledge of Allegiance in public schools. This used to be, Drew, something that was taught to children from when they were very young. We understood as our founders and intended that our free society, our constitutional republic was made for a moral people and would not it would not continue to exist for another. That was literally the founding fathers said that when they created the 
our nation. And that was that was taught to children. It's no longer taught to children. In fact, religious freedom is ridiculed. It's actually persecuted in many ways when people live out their faith in the public sphere. And so this is this has cost us this really important foundational aspect of our society, which is has led to things like objectifying women and the degradation of marriage. And I'm talking about pornography with both of those two things. And it's cost us this moral compass that we have, which I mean, you can look at what's happening in Hollywood. You can look at the the songs that are on the top of the charts. You can look at Cardi B's WAP, and you can see that conservatives haven't really been winning the culture war. If that's the kind of stuff that's if that's the kind of stuff that's reigning supreme right now. You know, it's funny. There's an argument going on among conservatives, an insane argument, where somebody Yaff, I think, made a joke about. Uh, making a big deal about licensing reform, professional licensing reform, which actually is an important subject. But there are all these right-wing intellectuals saying, no, we must talk about this. And I thought like, yeah, if you want to lose every election from now until forever, because these are the things that are actually affecting people's lives. I really do believe that. Well, you know, when you talk about uh, people falling away from God, now, obviously, the left is hostile toward God. They've actually booed God at their one of their conventions. But it, they don't have the power to simply talk people out of their faith. Something else seems to me to have been happening. I mean, is it is there a natural progression away from God as technology becomes more, uh, you know, ubiquitous or or is there something else that's going on? Is, is there a way back, I guess, is the question I really want to ask you. I don't know if I would point a finger at technology because technology in and of itself also has the power to do immense good. It has the power to allow the gospel to be heard by people who maybe wouldn't have otherwise heard it. I, I think honestly that the fault, some of the fault lies within the Christian churches, whether it's the Catholic church, whether it's the, you know, the dying Protestant churches in our country, whether it's evangelicals who have great intentions, but have sometimes set their um, cultural institutions. They've separated themselves from cultural institutions and created their sort of their own alternative institutions, which I understand why they do, but in the whole cultural um, situation, churches have failed to respond to people when they are getting bombarded by all these anti-God messages. They have failed to say, here's why you're here. Let us teach you why you're here. Let us teach you how to refute the other, these these, this propaganda that you're hearing, this anti-Christian propaganda that you're hearing. Let us steep you in God's word. Let us, you know, allow you to be, um, to evangelize to other people by equipping you with the tools that you need. Churches haven't done that very well, I don't think, over the last, really the last century, um, maybe in the Catholic Church since Vatican II, the Catholic Church hasn't done a very good job of it. And the price of that is many Christians go out, go to church out of habit. Many Catholics attend mass out of habit and aren't actually sure why they believe what they profess to believe. And the fault of that, of course, can't be laid at the feet of the public schools. That is the fault of the breakdown of the family because parents aren't passing their faith along and church and spiritual leaders who ought to be really hammering home to their congregations why it's so important that we believe what we believe. No, instead, they're hanging up signs that say Black Lives Matter and signs, you know, yeah. celebrating uh, Pride Month and all this stuff, which, you know, n- nothing against anybody, but it's just those are actually things of the world. They have nothing to do with the gospel. They're actually right. anti-gospel. Uh, in right. The Catholic ways. Church, for example, is very tied to this idea of social justice, which we know is essentially socialist. So even though the doctrine right. of the Catholic Church um, contains anti-communist, anti-communist theology, 
they specifically condemn communism. They're actually peddling what's essentially communism. The Protestant churches are turning to wokeism because they have dying congregations and they're trying to bring other people in instead of packaging the gospel in a way that's appealing to people or at least intriguing to people. They're abandoning the gospel in favor of wokeism to try to um, to try to recruit new members and the evangelical churches, uh, like I said, they tend to separate themselves a lot of times, not all of them. They tend to separate themselves from things of the world because they don't, they don't want to be associated with that. They don't want their children exposed to that. All of that's understandable. But when they do that, they tend not to, um, they tend not to reach as many people, I think. So we just came through this period of Donald Trump, which was this tumultuous period of absolute hysteria on the left, but also some, in some ways, Trump liked to feed that. He enjoyed it, I think. He enjoyed the drama and the, and the fight and all that. And it was, it was kind of wonderful to see in many ways. But it's now left us, I mean, Trump is, is gone for now, and it, it has left us in this interesting place. Do you think things have changed? Has Trump changed anything, or was he just a, a kind of passing blip on the screen? No, I think one of the most important things that we've learned over the past five years during during the Trump presidency and in the in the short time thereafter is that conservatives as a whole, and this is people across the country and maybe not even just conservatives, maybe common sense thinking Americans who don't want to identify with either party, um, conservatives crave bold leadership. They don't want someone who is going to go to Washington, D.C. and sell their soul. They don't want someone who's going to go to Washington, D.C. and be a squish. They want someone who will identify reality. Right. That's one of the things that people liked the most about Donald Trump is that he wasn't particularly spectacular with his words. And people loved that because he just identified what everybody was thinking. And that that's a skill in and of itself. But people want that. They see that the Democrats are peddling delusion, whether it's telling little kindergartners that they can be boys or girls, depending on how they identify. And that can change by the day, whether, you know, whether it's telling high school athletes that the biological male they're competing against is actually a woman and therefore it's fair, whether it's telling people that unborn babies aren't really babies and therefore we can do whatever we want, rip them limb from limb. People see that the Democrats are peddling delusion. They crave, people crave reality because we're in this post-truth uh, cultural era right now where it's not just partisan bickering anymore over what's true and what's false, who's lying and who's telling the truth. We're in a, ballady, a battle for the very soul of reality. And people want to hear that from pe- from both thought leaders and elected officials. So, so I, I suppose there's a two-part question. The first question is, do you think Trump will run next time? I don't know. I don't know. I think he's <laughs> going to tease it up until the last second. I think it probably depends on the temperature of the country. It probably depends on if there are other viable candidates. I'm not sure. I don't have any insider information into that. I guess at this point, my my true gut feeling would be he's going to tease it up until the end and then ultimately not run. But I have yeah. no information that backs up that opinion. No, but I actually agree with that. I mean, just if I had to guess, that's what I would think was, yeah. was going to happen. Are there people that you like or there's people that you're looking toward? You know, I am the most skeptical pessimist when it comes to politicians. I don't believe in identifying like rising stars because I think they always, whenever you put a politician on pedestal, they will betray you. They will disappoint you. So (laughs) I'm automatically skeptical, especially if someone says this person's a rising star and they're great. I'm like, are they, will they be in a year? We'll wait and see the, um, so I, I really pick out individual actions more than individual people. Um, I think Ron DeSantis has done a really good job with rolling back the COVID restrictions, which, by the way, he did implement at the beginning. So he's not perfect either. Um, But he's done a really good job rolling them back. He's also done a really good job with school choice and with critical race theory. Um, And I I think he's probably planning on running in 2024 from the looks of it. You know, a number of times during this conversation, you've mentioned reality and the the 
a crisis in reality, a war against reality. I think it's fair to say, you mentioned now critical race theory. Many, many years ago, Peter Robinson on uh, Uncommon Knowledge asked me why I kept using the word lies, why I kept talking about lies. And I said, because really now socialism only has lies to run on. This crisis of reality, and it, and it really is. I've never seen anything like it, and I've been around since John Adams. I mean, this is like I've never seen, I've never seen people talking about pure delusion like uh, transgenderism, the idea that you can magically change your sex. And, you know, not that there aren't people who are uncomfortable with their sex, but what has that got to do with who they are or what they actually are? Critical race theory, which is bigotry straight up, this kind of notion that if you are white, you are inherently a bigot, you're inherently a bad person. This absolute delusion, I just read a poll saying most Republicans don't believe any of this stuff, but about half of Democrats do believe it. About half of Democrats do believe it. What, where is that coming from? Is that, is that also a God crisis or is there some other thing that has arisen in our lives that have made people go basically insane? Well, in, the, in that case, I would suspect that the half of Democrats who buy into that garbage haven't heard the arguments against it or haven't haven't heard viable alternatives that they are caught in their own echo chambers. And it's easy. And I'm not even I'm not I don't even blame them for being caught in an echo chamber in a sense, because it's very easy if you don't if you don't view the world as a skeptic does, then you are funneled into public school when you were four or five years old. You are taught this from the very beginning. First, you're taught transgenderism in kindergarten, and then you're taught that white people are inherently racist. There is a There's an Oregon school board right now that's going to force classrooms to hang not only the American flag, but the Black Lives Matter flag and the pride flag, and include a, quote, land acknowledgement along with the Pledge of Allegiance. A land acknowledgement for anybody who doesn't know that um, is essentially saying that we are living on land that was stolen from the Native Americans. So children are indoctrinated from the very beginning in all of these different, essentially Marxist ideologies, um, that there's no true reality, that you're racist if you are a certain skin color, that you're identified by the color of your skin, that there's nothing you can do about it, there's no grace given to anybody, even if you apologize, that the family is a patriarchal uh, structure, that everybody's a victim of some ism, and you're surrounded by this. So first it's the school, and then it's the woke churches, and then you see it online. You see it when you watch movies and when you listen to music, and politicians are echoing it. And on college campus, you're told that you are a violent transphobe or some such nonsense if you so much as you know try to start a YAF chapter. And so it's, it's easy, in a sense, to get caught up in this, to believe this, if you don't actively seek out the reality, if you don't actively seek out alternative sources. Yeah, the one thing that, that I'm hopeful about is America has gone through these things before. We do go into these panics and hysteria. It usually passes. Some kind of Yankee sensibility arises and people let it go. It's great to see you, Liz, and I'm so looking forward to the show. I, the Liz Wheeler Show is now available, I assume, wherever podcasts are sold, right? Yes, sir. And I would encourage people to get it actually on Apple iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, okay. and give us a five-star rating, subscribe, write us a glowing review, of course, nothing mean. Because this helps us, by the way. This is how you climb up the charts on iTunes. And uh, if you climb up the charts, then other people will see it, and uh, more people will hear reality than before. And if you do, watch it. Let me know what you think. It's great to see you. I will see you again. I hope you come back. And, Thanks, And I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you somewhere, I'm sure. Of course you will. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. All right, gather your problems around you. Kiss them goodbye. They're going away. It's time for the mailbag. Woo! Yeah! 
<laughs> this contributed by Micah Romine, which we appreciate. Uh, from Cynthia, dear Andrew, I love your show. It's very funny. This is my question. Since you are guaranteed to respond with the best advice, um, I'm a 40-year-old Catholic woman. My husband is an atheist. We have a four-year-old child. And unfortunately, my husband is basically asexual, even though he denies this. I can count every time we have been together as husband and wife. I've never been with anyone else. It is a miracle we have a child. Uh, we don't really hug or kiss or anything very often. I know he loves me in his own way. Uh, on the other hand, I had a male friend at the office who was older than me, and I have fantasies about cheating. I've had so many mental affairs, and I feel very guilty about them. Uh, any advice, or am I just trapped into involuntary celibacy for the rest of my life? I'm opening my heart with this email. I hope you can reply. Thank you so much. Uh, well, I'll tell you, there are two outcomes to this. Either it can be fixed or it can't be, right? That's Those are the two outcomes. And if it's going to be fixed, it's not going to be fixed in silence. It's not going to be fixed by nagging. It's not going to be fixed by... Uh, anger or hints or anything like that is going to be fixed by a free and frank conversation with your husband. If he loves you, you say he does love you, then it is absolutely within your right. And I would say this is a very serious problem. I mean, it's a very serious thing to be asked to live without uh, touch and, and hugging and kissing and it, let, let alone sex. I mean, it, it's a very serious thing to have to live without sex. But all of this, all of this physical affection is a very important part of marriage and very important part of life. And so it's very important. And if it's going to be fixed, it's going to be fixed by sitting down with him in a non-accusatory way, because men are incredibly sensitive on this subject, in a non-accusatory way of t telling him that there's something very wrong in your marriage. There's a genuine large problem in your marriage that there is a lack of physical affection. And that goes, runs the gamut from kissing and hugging to sex. And you don't want him to say, you, you don't want him to say, oh, all right, well, if I have to, I'll have to. Obviously, that's not where you're trying to get something is wrong. It's not normal. This is not normal, what's happening to you. It's not the way people behave. It's certainly not the way men behave, right? So you want to make sure you're not telling him he's not being a man or something like that, but you want to say that you sense that something is wrong and you need to find out what it is. Now, I don't see how you're going to get to that place without some kind of therapy. I, I do not see, I think the guy needs to be assessed, professionally assessed. And and you should not say that to him, uh, but I think it's true. And I think that the way to do this may be to go into couples therapy, to have to go in where you both have this, you can say, we have this problem, we would like to address it. It's very possible something terrible happened to him when he was young and it's blocked him off. That's one possibility. There's some possibility that he's asexual. It's not very common and it usually traces back to a problem. And I think that uh, it's just something that you should address and you should let him know. Let him know this is very important to you. This is you're very unhappy with this. And it's not good for your child either to see two people who never kiss and hug each other as their parents. I don't know if he's a good father or not, but certainly children need that kind of, uh, you know, physical affection as well. So this is something you're going to have to address. And if he's an absolute wall and you can't get through him, if he doesn't, uh, you know, respond, if he just, just says, I'm not going to address this, uh, you've got a serious problem. And then you're going to have to talk to yourself about how you're going to live with that, because you're right, you are going to be uh, in a state of enforced celibacy, at least until the child is is grown and gone. But I think that this is something there is every chance that if you can get him into ther into couples therapy, if you just get him to listen and care and hear how uh, much pain you're in, um, that that, you know, that he will move forward and help himself and help you that way. Uh, if he does, uh, you know, please let me know. We want to hear how this goes. Um, 
from Anonymous. Um, he says, uh, Dear Andrew, I love the longer format to your show and look forward to listening to every week. He says, I became a uh, Christian after meeting my wife uh, in my early 20s. She's from the U.S. I'm from Scotland. I immigrated to the USA, which is the best decision I ever made. But during the long visa process, I was unfaithful to her and made several mistakes with other women. Uh, after feeling the conviction of this for eight years brought about by my faith in Christ, I confessed all my sinful behavior to her. At the beginning of this year, we're now in the process of rebuilding our marriage. Uh, we want, do not want to get divorced because we have two young children together. Uh, that's good to hear. Um, my question is, how can I earn her trust again and be the husband that God wants me to be? Uh, I've earnestly sought and prayed for forgiveness, but living with the guilt and shame of what I did in the past is proving difficult. Uh, any advice and suggestions would be much appreciated. Well, you earn her trust again, of course, uh, by being the husband God wants you to be. I mean, you can't, you, you, you screwed up big time. I mean, you really took the big, the big turn. You took a big belly flop and now you uh, are going to have to earn your way back into her trust. And you earn your way back into her trust by earning your way back into her trust. And one of the ways to do that is to be completely transparent. Give her the, uh, the code to your phone, uh, let her give her the password to your computer, give her the password to your iPad, whatever devices you have, wherever you may do something stupid, let her in. That's, it's annoying. It's an annoying way to live. You know, I, I, I can proudly say that my wife could go on any of my devices and would never find out anything she didn't already know. But, you know, I, I, she doesn't do that, but she may, your wife may, and may feel that she has the right to do that. She may also want to question you constantly, obsessively about what happened with these women. And you are going to have to answer those questions, but I will tell you that doesn't help. It does not help for her to constantly live through it over and over again. It just exacerbates it and makes it worse. So you've got to do that. Again, couples therapy can help. These are things that therapists are good at. This is what they do. You know, they can, they know they've had the experience to get you through this situation, but you're going to have to live observed uh, until you get her trust back and until she comes down from her hurt and anger, which you cause. And so as far as your own guilt and shame, God will forgive you. And hopefully, I hope and pray your wife will forgive you, uh, but you are also going to have to forgive yourself. There comes a point, guilt and shame are good sirens. They're good things that go off, little alarms that go off that say you were a schmuck and you were a schmuck. And so, you know, that, that's a good thing to have, but at some point they become self-indulgent. At some point they become, woe is me, I'm so bad. They become virtue signaling in and of themselves. You're going to have to let that go and you're going to have to do the work that it takes to give your wife the sense that she can trust you because it is a terrible thing to be in a marriage where you can't trust. All right. Last one uh, from Jean. Uh, hi, Andrew. Uh, thank you for sharing yourself with the world and with me. I'm 76 year old, six years old. I'm committed to being a Christian. I've never experienced the Holy Spirit or deep conversion. You strike me as a man who really lives in the spirit and has been converted. What happened inside you when you became a Christian? I'm sure you can't explain it, but I would like to hear you try. I read your book, The Great Good Thing, but it's more about the thought process you went through, not the actual experience, experience of God entering and changing you inside. You seem so happy, free, and non-judgmental. Uh, you know, all I can tell you about this is I never went through the kind of conversion experience that some Christians feel is absolutely necessary uh, to come to Christ. I never had this moment of just like, oh, I've been hit by lightning. This thing that every movie about Christianity has to have it in. It's like a, a, a law. Uh, you can't have that scene. But I will tell you that it was only like a week or two weeks after I was baptized when my wife turned to me, who knows me better than anybody else, turned to me and said, you have utterly changed. A serenity has come over you. A peace has come over you that has not been there. And she'd been married to me for decades. You know, she said there was not there before. So something obviously did happen. And for me, it was the 
uh, the simplicity of living in a world that, that made sense, of knowing that the God, that of accepting that the God who had guided my life throughout was there, of putting aside the endless analysis that I felt that Jordan was doing and saying, no, you know, there are footprints in the snow. Somebody has walked there and just b- letting myself believe what I already believed. It was just allowing myself to believe what I believed. It was a question in some ways of becoming myself, which I think is the funny thing about God is God said, you know, you have to, uh, he who loses himself will find himself. That is literally true. When you surrender yourself uh, to God, when you stop worrying about what you have and what the other guy has and what everybody, you know, when who you are and whether you're coming across right and whether people like you, when you stop worrying about all that and just give it over to God and say, you know what, let your will be my will, uh, it's relaxing. It is, it's just a big weight off your shoulders and it, it lets you go. Uh, and I think that that just came over me in a quieter way than it does with many people, but in a complete way. It was obvious that it had happened. And so I think that's there for you. It's there for, through prayer. It's there through church. It's there through worship. Uh, and it's there through doing it. You, have, you know, it is something you have to do. You do have to let go uh, in order to let go. You can't, it's not... God will work within you, but you have to let him work within you. And sometimes you have to take a half step in his direction and he will then lead you on. And it is a, it's a wonderful experience and it is joyful. It is. And it's hilarious. It, it makes the world far more hilarious than it was uh, before. I got to stop there, but I will be back next week. Will you? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, that's the classic way you're going to feel. The Clavenless week is upon you. Uh, it will be dark. There will be hellfire. There will be gnashing of teeth. Uh, sorry, but there's nothing I can do. It's not my, you know, not my decision. It's the way it is. However, if you crawl through and make it to next week, we will be back. I am Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. New studies and reports suggest that everything that the genius experts told us about COVID was wrong and everything that we said from the very beginning was right. Hate to say, told you so. I know we all hate to say, I told you so. The co-founder of BLM, By Large Mansions, uh, resigns in disgrace and an anti-cop radio host kills a cop hours after saying F the police. Check it out on The Michael Knoll Show. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.